Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Thanks, Ron. Well, good morning, everyone. Beautiful morning. Here it is. We're on these beautiful, glorious mornings, and uh, we're studying one of the darkest texts of Scripture, Jesus going to the cross. And as he does so, um, you and I need to be reminded that in this passage of Scripture, we have these really glorious truths that ought, ought to free us and give us life. Um, good to see you, Sam. Uh, as as uh, we come to the end of the school year, it's great to have students coming back. We had some coming back in the first service as well, but we also are sort of sad because we have some that we know are now graduating and moving on. I know Josie had her grad yesterday, and yesterday Ellie was dancing. We got to see her kind of ramp, ramp up, or wrap up, sorry, her uh, dancing career. So there's all kinds of emotions going on right now because we can sort of see changes taking place. In education, you know, one of the things um, that school boards or principals or teachers try to do is they try to have a target uh, information, um, educational goals that when you graduate elementary school, those of you who are homeschoolers, you do this, I'm sure, when you graduate the year you're in, uh, at the end of the year, we hope you know this amount of information, that you've got a grasp on uh, this amount of education so you can take it and move forward with it into your life. Well, the passage we're studying today is one of those texts teaching one of those doctrines that I would not want any one of you not to clearly understand. It's the doc doctrine or the teaching of substitutionary atonement. Theologians call it penal or penalty substitutionary atonement. And so we have a few people that are um, being baptized in a few weeks. And I would say that when you get baptized, going through the act of baptism, you need to understand this doctrine. And I'll tell you why, really frankly, that it is possible for you as a Christian to be able to understand Jesus came to forgive your sins. But there's a difference from knowing you're forgiven to feeling you're forgiven. There's a difference between knowing the facts of the gospel and walking in the freedom of the gospel from guilt and shame. And my heart's desire is one that many of you who have come in today, would walk out of this place today freed by the gospel, understanding the implication of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that you would walk out of here and realize Jesus has carried all your sin. It is finished, and that you have in him all the righteousness that you need, that you are set free. That's what's happening in this passage of Scripture. Luke wants us to see Jesus in our place. Jesus isn't just dying as a pawn of a political battle. Jesus has not just caused a hostility to arise amongst the religious establishment of his day. Jesus has come from God to die under God's judgment in your place. That's why we've been singing. 
so that you might walk out in Jesus' righteousness, free and forgiven. Don't you want that today? Not just an intellectual assent, but an appropriation of that grace in your life that you could live in the freedom and the joy of the gospel. I want you to have that today. And so let me read to you one of the most clear passages of Scripture that teach this doctrine. It's 700 years before Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53. Many of you will know this, but listen carefully to the language. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that this is uh, 700 years before Jesus, but it is written prophetically in the past tense. The idea for you is to realize it's done. It's done in the mind of God. It's done in the purpose of God. It's done in the plan of God. And we live on the other side of fulfillment. My friends, it is finished. It is fulfilled. God is satisfied. You need to have that clear in your mind today. So let me give you uh, Tom Schreiner's definition of the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Listen to this. And I'm saying it over again, purposefully repetitive today, so that you have it as part of who you are and you understand it clearly. Schreiner writes, all people are in need of a substitute since all are guilty of sinning against a holy God. All sin deserves punishment because all sin is personal rebellion against God himself. When animal sacrifices took on the guilt of God's people in the Old Testament, these sacrifices could never fully atone for the sins of man. For that, Jesus Christ came and died in the place of his people. Got that? That's substitution. Jesus died in the place of his people, taking upon himself the punishment that they deserved. So that's penal substitutionary atonement. He took your penalty. While there are other theories of the atonement which point to other valid aspects of what happened in Christ's death, the penal substitutionary element of the crucifixion secures all other benefits that come to God's people through the death of their representative. So I could just stop and say, you know, one of the effects of Jesus' death on the cross is that you become a part of God's family. You could talk about the doctrine of adoption. But I need to say this to you. There is no doctrine of adoption if there's no penal substitutionary atonement. If Jesus doesn't die in your place for your sin, you have no hope. You have no home. You have no future. Every benefit of salvation starts with Jesus in your place on the cross for your sins. And so that needs to be at the heart of what we believe. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. 
For all have sinned, and what? Fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His, by grace, His grace as a gift. So justification is a gift that comes through grace, but how? Listen to what Paul writes. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus has come to take your place to propitiate God. And so one of the answers to the question, why did Jesus die? Is because God sent him to die. In your place for your sin. That's the love of God. That God sent his son to die in the place of sinners. And his son came to do that. Now again, I'm re being really clear because there are going to be moments in my life and your life where you need to draw, dr drink deeply from the doctrine. There are moments as a Christian where you will wake up because uh, you're never sanctified in a moment completely. There's a process of sanctification. And, and there are moments where you're going to wake up and you're going to realize, man, I have been living in fear all my life. Even though I'm a believer and I believe I'm forgiven, or I've been living in shame and embarrassment for much of my life. And I'm inviting you today to ask the question, where have you been living? And I'm not just asking people who may not know this truth, but I'm asking all of us, where have you been living in the shadows, in shame, in guilt, in anxiety, and in fear, because you have not understood fully that it is finished, that God is satisfied, and Christ has saved you. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Patty Withers is the women's ministry director at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and she shares this part of her testimony. She says, when I was 25, I became pregnant, unsaved and unmarried and raised in a church that taught that babies weren't human until they were born. The solution to my problem was nauseatingly simple. So I made an appointment, had the procedure, took a few days off from work and went back to life as usual. I'm just going to pause and make a pastoral comment here. Um, I believe that abortion is wrong and I believe it's a great evil and I believe that regularly in our churches are women who have suffered through abortion. And so when I talk about abortion, I want to talk to women and say, if that's you, Christ is for you. Um, I have seen women get free from this guilt and shame that she's talked about. You don't have to live in shame and shadows. And that's what she's talking about. She lived that way for a long time. Let me continue to read her testimony. She said, it was only after the Lord saved me that I realized the weight of what I'd done. The sin was so heinous and irreparable and the guilt and shame were so overwhelming that it was almost nearly 10 years before I told anyone other than my husband what I had done. I believed that God had forgiven me of my sin of abortion, but my guilt and my shame lingered. What I lacked, she writes, was an understanding and application of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that she was, uh, sorry, of Christ, 
my lingering guilt and shame were not were a re, sorry were a result of not really understanding that in addition to forgiveness my salvation also brought me justification and a right standing with God the wrath of God that I justly deserved had been completely satisfied by Christ isn't that good news it's the best news in the world therefore God removed the guilt of my sin and granted to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so my question this morning is, do you feel the weight, the full weight of your forgiveness? Have you ever walked away fully from your sin, your failures, your past with a deep sense, a deep abiding sense of forgiveness and freedom? Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. I have one desire today that everybody would skip out of here on this sunny day. In the full forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want for you today. So let's, let's take a look at this text together. Let's walk through the text and see what Luke emphasizes. Here's the first thing I want you to see in the passage Jesus is really silent in Luke's gospel in this section. In fact, in, in this passage of Scripture, uh, there's only one real scene where you hear from Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 23, uh, verse 4, sorry, verse 3, when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. That's it. The rest of the time, there are the voices of the, 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 the religious establishment. The rest of the time are the crowds crying, crucify him. You see conversations with Pilate and with Herod wanting to talk to Jesus. But Jesus is not answering. Jesus is not speaking. He remains silent. Later on in verse 9, Jesus goes before Herod and Luke 23 9 says so Herod questioned Jesus at some length and Jesus gave no answer now I want to think about that for a second there are two charges that are brought against Jesus in Luke 23 the beginning of this chapter verse 1 it says then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate so remember in the last chapter at the garden Jesus has the betrayal. Judas kisses him. They take Judas, Jesus from the garden and they take him to, uh, or they go from there and they take him to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leadership, are not allowed to deliver a sentence until the sun rises. And so at sunrise, Jesus is brought to the chief priests and the leaders and they interrogate Jesus and they ask him questions, and, they, and Jesus gives a response at one point in time, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And they go, heresy. And they go, we got you. And then they move in this chapter towards Pilate, because under Roman law, they had authority over their people, except they could not have a death penalty. And if they wanted to execute anyone, they had to go to the Roman government. So you and I need to understand that this movement has a very specific purpose, crucifixion, right from the beginning. They are taking Jesus to have him executed. 
So the whole company of them arose and brought, before, brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading us, uh, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. Now let me, um, let me ask you the question, are their accusations true? Somewhat yes and somewhat no. On one hand, Jesus, they say Jesus is not allowing us to pay tribute to Caesar. And so they're pointing to Jesus and saying that he is what? He's an insurrectionist trying to turn the people away from the Roman Empire. And what they're saying is a blatant lie. It's an absolutely blatant lie. In Luke chapter 20, they actually try to trick Jesus and they come to him and say, ask him the question, should we pay taxes as Jews to to Rome or not? And Jesus um, catches them because he says, does anyone have a denarius? They hand him a denarius, and he picks it up, and he says, whose inscription, whose picture is inscribed on this denarius? And the people answer and say what? Caesar's. And he gives them their coin, and he says, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. And so Jesus is not telling him, don't give tribute to Caesar. Jesus is saying what he said regularly, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of the Roman Empire. I'm not trying to go against Caesar's empire. I have a totally other kingdom. But they do say to uh, Pilate, he says that he is the Christ who is a king. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. But again, when Jesus says that, they're saying he is trying to establish a parallel kingdom. He is not establishing a parallel kingdom. He is establishing a permanent kingdom. He is not establishing a political kingdom. He is establishing an eternal spiritual kingdom as our Savior and King. Now, as they come and say that Jesus is trying to uh, establish insurrection against Rome, you and I can remember what Jesus said to Pilate in John's Gospel, because John reminds us in John 18, 36, that when Pilate is asking him if he's a king, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered from over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And you and I need to realize as we go through this text, they're trying to save their kingdoms. Jesus is seeking to save us. They're trying to establish their life and their power, and protect it by killing Jesus. Jesus is going to the cross in order that his kingdom could never be defeated ever more. That by his death, he would save us. And so when Pilate inquires of Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus simply says, you have said so. I was talking to somebody last week, and they asked me the question, why does Jesus answer that way? It seems a little confusing what's he actually saying are you the king of the jews and he says you have said so and the commentators say that by not answering what they're saying but by saying what he's doing jesus is actually saying that he is not going to bend or break under their pressure that he is absolutely devoted and because he's of another kingdom he is not he is not submissive to or surrendering to Caesar or uh, Herod. 
Pilate or Herod. Listen to David Garland. He says, Jesus' answer, so you say, may be equivalent to a sarcastic whatever. Or what does it look like to you? Ancient readers in the Greco-Roman world would likely view Jesus' refusal to confess as a sign of his brave resistance. I'm not going to bend. I'm going to do what I've come to do. Now that's true, but I think there's more to it. I think that Jesus doesn't answer them because he's already settled with someone else what he's about to do. You see, Jesus has already done his talking where? In Gethsemane, on his knees, in the garden. And when he was in the garden, what did he pray? Father, if it is at all possible, what? Renew, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. At that moment, Judas arrives. At that moment, Jesus gets his answer. At that moment, the Father says, I am sending you to the cross. And I see Jesus' silence here as submission to the will of the Father. That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that God, Jesus has come to substitute us at the will of his Father. He's not a, a pawn in a political battle. He's not just a unfortunate unfortunately in the wrong place at the right time. He is in the right place at the right time. He's exactly where the prophets have prophesied. He's going to that hill where God has appointed. He has come to die for the will of the Father and for the good of the sheep. Aren't you glad for that? That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is following God's authority. In John 19, 10, and 11, Pilate confronts him with his silence. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority unless it had been given from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin and so Jesus says, you, I, I'm not answering you because the, you're saying you've got the authority to let me go and you have the authority to crucify me. You don't have any authority. It comes from God. I'm here on a divine mission. I'm here at God's beck and call. And, and in Peter, when Peter later on writes his epistle, Peter talks about the silence of Jesus. In fact, he says to us that we should be silent like Jesus when we're suffering. And he points to Jesus' example. But listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, 22. Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to do what? Entrusted him, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Stop there. Peter's saying, do you know why Jesus wasn't chatty? You know why he wasn't argumentative? You know why he wasn't verbally defiant? Because he was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. It's a doctrine of substitution. He says here, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Isn't that good news, friends? Jesus has zipped His lips because He's got His orders. And the orders don't come from Pilate, and they don't come from Caesar, and they don't come from Herod. They come from his Father. And here's the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, I want you to hear that today, because it's in that freedom. Jesus did this for you. The Father willed it from all eternity. He has come to do the will of the Father. If, you don't, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is not political uh, efforts. This is divine deliverance sent down from heaven. Secondly, what I want you to see in this text of Scripture is not only the silence of Jesus, but the innocence of Jesus. And this is really clear in this chapter. If you read through this gospel, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, four times, I believe in this section that Ron just read for us, we are told by Herod and Pilate that Jesus is not guilty. They repeatedly say that. And in Jewish uh, writing and in Greek literature, when you have repetition, it's to make you go, aha. It's an emphatic way of getting your attention to say, you have just read the main point. I'm working my dissertation. Well, I've written my dissertation. I'm now in the edit, torturous editing process of my dissertation. And my dissertation supervisor keeps telling me to say the same thing over and over again. I'm tired of my dissertation. <laughs> I have learned what I want to learn. I want a holiday. <laughs> uh, but you know what? This is what goes on here. It's re repetitive. And look at verse 4 in Luke chapter 23. And Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, what? I find no guilt in him. Jesus is innocent. He's righteous. They're coming and saying he is a political insurrectionist. William Hendrickson says, Pilate knew very well that the Jews were not so deeply in love with Rome and with Roman rule that they would have had a hankering to execute someone who uttered anti-Roman sentiment. Isn't that ridiculous? It says he was well aware of the fact that the real reason for the demand that he confirmed the death sentence which the Sanhedrin already had passed was envy. Matthew chapter 27, 18 for he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up to him. You and I need to hear that when Pilate hears the words that Jesus is a Galilean, what does he do? Oh, I can wash my hands of this. I'll send him over to Herod. And we're told, this is an interesting thing, in this chapter we are told that this scene is what makes Pilate and Herod friends for the first time in a long time. And uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, we were told that uh, Jesus asked the question of uh, the people, are you any more innocent than the Galileans who were slaughtered, whose blood was shed by Pilate? And as you read that, you realize that there was clear territorial lines of authority between Herod, between the Jewish people, between the Romans, and someone crossed the line. Pilate 
had crossed the line and executed a group of Galileans, and it seems to me Herod was not happy about it. Their relationship had been strained. So in order to reconcile their relationship, he, go, he hears the word Galilean. He goes, uh-oh, I've done this before. And he says, I'll send this guy from Nazareth of Galilee back to Herod, and I'll let Herod do, deal with it. And Herod, seeing this gesture of goodwill, becomes friends with him. But even in all the mechanisms of politics and power and corruption, these guys are not good guys. I mean, they're still politicking in the middle of this. Just think about the fact that when Jesus is sent to both of them, they say to themselves, maybe if I punish him and let him go, they will let him go. Was he worthy of any punishment? Not a hair of his head should have been touched. He was the pure and innocent one. But maybe if we wrap him up in a robe and put a crown of thorns on his head and mock and spit on him and send him back, if we send him back that way, we'll get a little chuckle between ourselves and we're thinking we're on the same team. That's what it seems like. But in every scene, even these corrupt men cannot get, back, get past the fact that Jesus is not guilty. And so we're told uh, later when, in verse 13 to 15, Pilate then called the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. That is a complete statement. There is not one piece of evidence that stands up under jurisprudence. There's not one piece of evidence to indicate that Jesus did or was what you claim. He said, neither did Herod. Because why? If Herod had found Jesus guilty, Herod could have executed Jesus. But he sent him back. Look, he says, nothing deserving death has ever been done by him nothing deserving death has ever been done by him later in the chapter 20 to 22 Pilate addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus but they kept shouting crucify him crucify him and a third time he said to them why what evil has he done and I want you to think about that this morning because what ends up happening here is it wasn't for his evil but yours that he dies it wasn't the evil that he had done it was the evil that i have done that put him on the cross why what evil is he done i have found in him no guilt deserving death i will punish him and release him why do we have these repetitions in the scriptures these I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Because in the Old Testament Jewish law, you had to have the testimony of two or three witnesses for you to be uh, punished as guilty. We have two witnesses saying multiple testimonies that they don't find him guilty. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. These witnesses give testimony that Jesus is not guilty 
of what he's been charged of. Now, I want you to hear this for this reason. Remember I said at the beginning, I would love you to go out not just intellectually knowing that you're forgiven, but feeling the freedom of your forgiveness today. I want you to have that today. You and I need to realize that the reason this is emphasized here is in the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, every statement that these kings, rulers, said about Jesus, Jesus and God now say about you. I'm going to read them to you again. But now because Jesus has died for your sins, listen to them because God says this about you. I find no guilt in this man. Or put woman. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Christ Jesus who died. You stand in the presence of God the day, the moment, the millisecond after you've died. Because the Bible says it is appointed for man to die once and then face the judgment. On, on the day if you have died by faith in Jesus Christ and you stand before God, you will hear Jesus on your behalf say these words, I find no guilt in this man. How is that possible? Because that guilt has been put away forever. You will hear God say, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Would you put your name in there? Would you feel the weight of it today? None. Zero. You don't need to hear it from me. You will hear it from heaven. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Um, Megan and Jason Seasting uh, got to interview them again this week, getting baptized in a couple of weeks. And I remember the first time I, I went over to Excelsior and I had coffee with Jason. And I said, Jason, what have you been doing since you've become a Christian? He said, I've been reading the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And I said, what did you, give me a summary statement of the first five books of the Bible. And he said, I should have been put to death. And I thought for a new believer to read the first five books of the Bible and make it that succinct and that accurate, what a statement. But let me ask you this question. If the Old Testament law says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we have all sinned and are worthy of death, what's the summary statement of the gospel? Paid in full. It is finished. Or as this line says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And finally, the last one, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. It will not be found in you because it's been placed on Jesus. Is that not good news, folks? That's the truth of the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Let me just go to the last thing because this is really crucial. At the end of this, I want you to see not only the silence of Jesus and the innocence of Jesus, but let's look at the sentence of Jesus here. So if you look at verse uh, 18, after he says, I'll punish him and release him, it says, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And then Luke describes him, a man who had been thrown into prison for an erection, instigated uh, in the city, 
started in the city and for murder. We want you to get rid of this man. He's starting an insurrection. We want to get rid of this man. He's corrupt and dangerous and he's not loyal. And, it, and, they, and they go, I have got no evidence of this. Okay, then give us a man who did do that and let him go free. Talk about hypocrisy. But commentators remind us that we are meant to picture ourselves in the story. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? The son of the father. We pray in the Bible, Abba, Father. The name Father. What's, what's going on in this passage? The one called son of the father is being traded with the one who is the son of the father. It's not accident, friends. When he was born, his parents gave him a name not knowing that in the plan of God, one day he would do the great exchange. That the son of the little F father, Abba father, would be traded for the son of the eternal father so that the son of the eternal father would get a sentence and die a crucifixion as a murderer and an insurrectionist while the one who was a murderer and insurrectionist would walk away free. And we say, that's injustice. But my dear friends, that's us. And it's not injustice, it's justice. Because we're all son of the little F father, Adam. You and I, since the fall of Adam and Eve, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are sons and daughters of Adam. There's none of us without guilt, none of us without stain, none of us without reason to have shame. But guess what? All of Barabbas's, your Barabbas, my Barabbas, all of our sin has been placed on him. The son of capital F father. The, the new Adam. All on him. So that we might walk away free. Aren't you glad for that? I don't know if you knew today coming into here, but your name is Barabbas. But we have had our name changed to a capital B, capital A in a sense. We are now sons and daughters of Abba because of Jesus. J.I. Packer in Knowing God talks about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He says, with other New Testament writers, Paul always points to the death of Jesus as the atoning event and explains atonement in terms of re representative substitution. The innocent taking the place of the guilty in the name and for the sake of the guilty under the acts of God's judicial retribution. Tom Schreiner says, Jesus dies as God's sinless, innocent one. Even the pagans who are present recognize that he doesn't deserve to die. The story told here is our story. Luke wants his readers to see himself or herself in Barabbas. Can you imagine Barabbas riding out of town? And he probably thought, man, we got, that was close. We got out of that one. My dear friends, you can walk out of church today not like a guilty Barabbas, but like a righteous son and daughter of God. Amen. Romans 5 says, For if by, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more, much more 
will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. What's that one act of righteousness? The cross. Jesus died in her place. Second Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. Paul says, I got one message. I say the same message every place I go. Get right with God. Reconcile with God. And he's, if he stopped there, you'd say, okay, do I have to fix my life? Do I have to perform better? Do I have to go to to, to services more often? What do I do? Listen to what he writes. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. You get to be reconciled at the price of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon uh, used this illustration where he talked about Luther. And he says, Spurgeon writes, Luther says that when the devil came to him, he brought a long sheet containing a list of his sins or of a great number of them. And Luther said to the devil, is that all? And no, said the devil. Well, go and fetch some more, Luther says to the devil. Away went Satan to bring him another long list as long as your arm. And Luther said, is that, is that all? Oh, no, said the devil. I have more yet. Well, go and bring them all, said Luther. Fetch them all out, the whole list of them. And then it was a very long black list. I think I have heard that it would have gone around the world twice. And Spurgeon says, I know mine would have. Well, then, what did Luther say when he said them all? He said, right at the bottom of them, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. It doesn't matter how long the list is when you write those blessed words at the bottom. The blood of Jesus has taken away all our sins. If that is true, friends, our sins are all gone. Is that not good news? So we're going to take communion together and we're going to celebrate the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And you can walk out of here today free. So let's celebrate that together. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.